Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. We'll never know what a Somerton man thought the day would have in store for him as he stepped off a train at Adelaide Station one Australian summer morning in 1948. All we know is he was heading to his death. The man's strange demise on the beach at Somerton would spawn Australia's greatest unsolved mystery, a secret code that remains unbroken to this day, and persistent rumors of Cold War intrigue and spying. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Two boys exploring the woods in Long Island, New York found more than just the chestnuts they were looking for. One pupil discovers that Mystery Meat Monday isn't the only thing to fear when heading to lunch at the school cafeteria. It's amazing the extraordinary lengths our world leaders will go to in order to cover up reports of alien aircraft sightings and the like. And we know they are covering them up, because occasionally they do come clean about it, as they did in the 1980s in Britain. A woman woke up to discover her husband had disappeared from the bed and she couldn't find him. But after looking through the house, she finds something surprising waiting for her in the bedroom. And was the unidentified man found dead on an Adelaide beach in 1948 a Cold War spy? We'll begin with that story. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Weird Darkness continues in just a moment. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the paranormal audiobook Your Haunted Lives Revisited by G. Michael Vasey. This collection of mystifying, scary, real-life ghost stories are true tales of horrifying encounters with the supernatural and paranormal. They include visits from terrifying entities, haunted houses, strange and scary poltergeists, attempted possession, Ouija board nightmares, evil demonic forces, haunted cemeteries, haunted places, and much, much more. They will chill you to the bone. These are supplemented with true stories of the editor's own strange and scary experiences. This terrific, terrifying collection of true spooky stories of the paranormal will keep you looking over your shoulder and wide awake. Your Haunted Lives Revisited by G. Michael Vasey narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Get the audiobook free by signing up for a 30-day free trial of Audible and also hear a free sample of the audiobook on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. 
The story begins on the morning of December the 1st, 1948, at a beach near Glenelg, seven miles from the South Australian city of Adelaide. Local jeweler John Lyons had become concerned about a man he had seen the previous evening laying fully clothed on the sand, propped up against the sea wall. Lyons had initially dismissed the slumbering figure as a drunk sleeping off a rough session, but the next morning he was still there, cold and pale, an extinguished half-smoked cigarette resting on his shirt collar. The man was clearly dead. Lyons alerted the police. If this unfortunate soul was a drunk, his hangover had proven terminal. But it seemed unlikely, even at first glance, the man was clearly no vagrant, as he was well-dressed, in a suit, pullover and tie, and what looked like freshly polished shoes. What initially might have been something relatively straightforward, like illness or suicide, quickly became a whole lot more complex and puzzling by the troubling details of the man's death. The Somerton man, as he became known for reasons about to become clear, was about 45 years old, in excellent physical condition, with unusually well-defined and muscular calves and smooth, well-manicured hands. Found on his person was some juicy fruit chewing gum, a couple of combs, a box of Army Club cigarettes with more expensive Kansita cigarettes inside, a used bus ticket to Glenelg, and an unused train ticket to nearby Henley Beach. The trouble for the police was that was it. Aside from this small assortment of items, the body was entirely and utterly anonymous. No wallet, passport, or identification documents. Strangest of all, the label in his clothing had been deliberately removed. Whomever Somerton Man was, he either wanted to remain anonymous or somebody had stripped the body of any form of identification. If the case wasn't already difficult enough for the Adelaide police, no cause of death could be ascertained either. There were no marks on the body or signs of a struggle, and the autopsy revealed he had not died of a heart attack or other natural causes. There was, however, signs of damage to his organs. The brain, stomach, and liver were congested with blood, leading the pathologist to suspect he had died as the result of hemorrhaging caused by poison. The pathologists were puzzled, though. It was the only explanation for his death they could come up with, but even this made no sense. Absolutely no traces of poison were found in the man's body, and there were no signs of convulsing or vomiting at the scene. If this was a poisoning, then it was a very sophisticated one, using a rare poison that left no trace. Odd for small-town Australia in the 1940s. It also looked like murder rather than suicide, as the body's peaceful and undisturbed state when discovered suggested it had been moved into position after the poison had taken effect. Whatever the case, it appeared the work of professionals. The stripping of identification from the body, the removal of all the tags from his clothing, the signs of a sophisticated, traceless poison, it all pointed to the world of espionage. Was Somerton Man a spy? A few scant leads emerged. A couple of locals suggested he was a man named E.C. Johnson, but when Johnson promptly walked into an Adelaide police station alive and well, that possibility evaporated. 
all other inquiries proved fruitless. Even searches as far afield as the UK and the US returned nothing. Just days after Somerton Man's discovery, the case was as cold as the body on the slab. No name, no clues, a dead end. On December 10th, the body was embalmed, the first time anyone could remember this happening to an unidentified person. For the next six weeks, Somerton Man was little more than a local curiosity, all inquiries exhausted. Then, on January 14, 1949, a breakthrough was made when staff at Adelaide train station finally made a connection between media reports of the mystery man found at Somerton and an unclaimed suitcase that had been resting in their cloakroom since December. Inside the suitcase, police found clothes similar to those Somerton man had been wearing. The dates checked out too, as it had been deposited at the station the day before the man's body had been found. A distinctive yarn of orange barber waxed thread inside the suitcase clinched it. The same orange thread had been used to repair the pocket of Somerton Man's trousers. It was his suitcase, all right. Were police finally able to solve the mystery then? Unfortunately, the contents of the suitcase were of little help in identifying Somerton Man. If anything, what was inside only deepened the mystery. It was mostly the kind of mundane stuff you'd expect in a suitcase – a dressing gown, a pair of trousers, a pair of slippers, underpants, and pajamas, shaving equipment, pencils, envelopes, and stamps. Most interesting was a knife and scissors, a square of zinc, and a stenciling brush of the kind used by seamen to mark cargo on merchant ships. Perhaps Somerton Man was a foreign sailor? It certainly seemed he was not Australian or if he was, he was a frequent traveler abroad. Both the barber thread and the man's coat were of a kind not sold in Australia. Ominously, like the clothes the man was wearing, almost everything in the suitcase had had its label deliberately mutilated. There were, however, a couple of notable exceptions. A wash bag bore a label with the name T. Keen on it, and the name Keen was found on a singlet. While this was an important clue, investigation detectives Lionel Lean and Len Brown were confused. Why had all the other labels been so meticulously removed, yet these left intact? They felt the distinct possibility that somebody was deliberately trying to mislead them. Regardless, a search for T. Keen and Keen in missing persons records in the whole English-speaking world returned nothing. One possibility was the man was from the Eastern Bloc, whose records were off-limits to Western investigators with the onset of the Cold War. Again, it looked like the police had reached another dead end. After six months with no further leads, a coroner's inquest into the mystery man's death finally commenced on June 7, 1949. With little new evidence to go on, it came to much the same conclusion reached back in December. Pathologist John Burton Cleland stated it would be prepared to find that he died from poison, that the poison was probably a glucoside, and that it was not accidentally administered, but I cannot say whether it was administered by the deceased himself or by some other person. Despite the inconclusive verdict, a major discovery was made at the inquest. Initially missed by the pathologists was a small scrap of paper 
hidden inside the fob watch pocket of Somerton Man's trousers. It would change the whole complexion of the case. It was torn out from a page of a book of poetry called the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam and contained the phrase, Tamam Shud. The Rubaiyat itself is concerned with the themes of seizing every day and leaving behind no regrets. Tellingly, Tamam Shud means ended or finished in Persian. The implication that Somerton Man had used the book as an impetus to suicide is obvious. Police went to the media with the new finding in the hope that somebody would be able to identify the book the scrap had been from. They were soon contacted by a man who wished to remain anonymous who had found a rare 1859 Edward Fitzgerald translation of the Rubiat on the back seat of his unlocked car which had been parked in Glenelg around the time the body was found. Forensic experts matched the torn scrap to a page from the book, but nobody had any idea why it had been ripped out or, indeed, why it had been sewn into the man's trousers. None of that made any sense. It is probably the discovery of the book, more than anything else, that ensures we're still talking about Somerton Man 70 years later. It would turn an obscure John Doe case into one of the most baffling and intriguing mysteries of the entire Cold War. And, like many great mysteries, this one had a secret code. Aside from the torn-out scrap, the forensic experts also found very faint letters written in pencil on the book's inside cover. It looked like some kind of code or cipher. It read as such, W-R-G-O-A-B-A-B-D, space, M-L-I-A-O-I, space, W-T-B-I-M-P-A-N-E-T-P, space, M-L-I-A-B-O-A-I-A-Q-C, space, I-T-T-M-T-S-A-M-S-T-G-A-B, end. Also written in the book was something less cryptic, an unlisted telephone number that belonged to a local nurse named Jessica Thompson. Thompson lived less than a mile from where Somerton Man's body was found and was clearly connected to the dead man in some way. At the time of the police inquiry, Thompson requested and was granted anonymity by the police and was referred to for many years only by the name Jestin. The detectives who interviewed Thompson noted her evasive manner seeming reluctant to offer up any information about what, if anything, she knew. Most startling was her reaction when shown a plaster cast of the dead man's face. Thompson was visibly shocked and was described by detectives present as completely taken aback, to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint. Despite this extraordinary reaction, Jessica Thompson claimed not to recognize Somerton Man but did tell police that she too had once owned a copy of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. Thompson had worked as a nurse in Sydney during World War II and recalls giving her copy of the book to an army lieutenant she had met there called Alf Boxel. Was this a tale of an old love tracking down his wartime sweetheart in the hope of a reconciliation? Hoping they might finally be closing in on the solution to the mystery, and the identity of the Somerton man, police attempted to track Boxall down. Unfortunately for them, but fortunately for Boxall, they found him alive and well and living in Sydney. 
Boxall still had his copy of the Rubaiyat, complete with the intact page bearing the phrase, Tamam Shud, and signed with Justin, Thompson's pseudonym. Boxall claimed no knowledge of the dead man and said he had not had any contact with Thompson after 1945. Clearly, Thompson and Boxall had not been entirely honest. Two copies of a book of poetry owned by two men, both inscribed with direct references to the same woman. There had to be a connection, and some of the detectives' long-held suspicions about the case began to become manifest. The code, the missing labels, and the air of mystery surrounding the dead man raised the possibility his death was espionage-related, and he himself may even have been a spy. Did Thompson and Boxall know more than they were letting on? Were they both spies themselves, unable to tell police what they knew because it was top secret? That there might be a darker force at work here was reinforced by the discovery of another similar death in 1945, where a Sydney man named George Marshall also died, supposedly from poisoning clutching a copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Was the book some kind of standard issue for spies? Was it used for identification or as a book cipher? Australia in the post-war period was thick with espionage. The UK and US both suspected the Soviets of operating agents in the country, which housed such highly sensitive installations as the top-secret British rocket and nuclear test base Wumura 300 miles north of Somerton. The spying thesis was clearly credible, and the suspicious silence of those involved only reinforced the idea. But after failing to get anywhere with Boxall and no help from Thompson, the case eventually went cold. Interest would periodically be revived, with dozens of people over the years coming forward claiming to know who Somerton Man was, but on every single occasion, the leads amounted to nothing. Much later, in the 1970s, Alf Boxall would be interviewed on Australian television. While admitting he had been involved in intelligence during the war, he denied there was any spying connection in the Somerton Man case, stating it's quite a melodramatic thesis, isn't it? But Boxall's attempts to downplay the idea have had little effect on its enduring popularity and the case has never been far from the public consciousness in Australia. Rumors that this was an untold and still untellable story of Cold War intrigue persists to this day. Was the nameless mystery man found on Somerton Beach really a spy, killed in the course of some clandestine mission? Several aspects of the Somerton Man case are suggestive of spying. Whilst innocent interpretations can perhaps be found for each, when taken as a whole, it's difficult to justify an alternative explanation. As mentioned before, the lack of documents and the removal and mutilation of the man's clothing labels look like an attempt to obfuscate his identity. However, it seems unlikely Somerton Man himself would have done that. If he was a spy or undertaking some kind of criminal activity, it would have been necessary to assume a false identity rather than be entirely anonymous. Instead, it seems the stripping of Somerton Man's identity was done by a third party, seeking to ensure the man's death would leave a dead end for investigators. Clearly, there is a strong likelihood whoever did this 
was also responsible for his death. In the pre-DNA era and with the absence of any witnesses, an anonymous victim would be almost impossible for the police to identify. This also ensures no motive for the death can be ascertained and no possible likely perpetrators. The method of the man's death also signals this case out as something more than a regular suicide or murder. The original investigators in 1948 were sure he had been poisoned but were unable to ascertain exactly how and with what substance. The murder had been committed with such skill and with a poison that was sufficiently obscure and untraceable that it singled out the perpetrators as professionals. A more recent examination of the case in 1994 reasoned the poison was probably digitalis. John Harbor Phillips, Chief Justice of Victoria and Chairman of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, reviewed the case to determine the cause of death, and noting the engorgement of the man's organs, concluded that there seems little doubt it was digitalis. However, other experts are skeptical that digitalis was used in this instance. Whilst it is possible to use digitalis as an untraceable poison, this is mainly due to its ability to mimic a heart attack coupled with its widespread use as heart medication. This has led to some murders being overlooked by pathologists as overdoses of legitimate prescriptions. In actual fact, digitalis is not innately difficult to detect and would have probably been discovered in Somerton Man's case as his death was suspicious and unexplained. If he was poisoned, it was therefore more likely to be something more obscure and esoteric that would not be detected without prior knowledge of its use. Since the 1920s, the KGB had been experimenting with producing exactly such poisons. The infamous Laboratory No. 12 was originally set up by Lenin in 1921 and expanded its remit under Stalin in the 1940s. It was specifically tasked with producing unique and untraceable substances, often by combining known poisons in unusual ways with the specific intention of mimicking natural causes and baffling forensic investigators. Undoubtedly, the Western agencies had similar departments. Was Somerton Man killed by one of these exotic poisons? Perhaps the Mystery Man was a double agent, whose treachery had been discovered by the Soviets or even a Soviet agent whose operation in Australia was discovered by Western intelligence. Even the suggestion a country had been penetrated by foreign intelligence could do so much damage that it would routinely be covered up, providing a satisfactory explanation as to why Somerton Man had been stripped of all identification. It is perhaps the book and cipher that is most redolent of spying, evoking as it does countless fictional tales of espionage. The five-line, 50-character message has prompted endless debate over the years, with many amateur codebreakers and even Department of Defense cryptologists attempting to discern its meaning. So far, all have failed, and its true purpose and intent remain unknown to this day. Some have speculated that it's not a cipher at all, but some kind of mnemonic or acrostic. If the message is in English, then linguistic analysis of the text conducted by Professor Derek Abbott at Adelaide University reveals it's more likely that the letter frequencies of the message correspond to the first letters of English words rather than normal English text. 
Others believe the text is merely gibberish, the fevered product of a disturbed mind. Whatever the case, its placement in a book of poetry is almost more interesting. The Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam is clearly significant as it appears three times in this story. Was it being used as a book cipher? When the Australian Navy Cryptographic Department examined the letters, they came to just that conclusion. A reasonable explanation would be that the lines are the initial letters of words of a verse of poetry or such. A book cipher has been a common spy technique as long as books have existed. The essential principle is that the key to the code in question is a section of text in a book or other commonly available published material. If a book is used, it is usually required that both sides of the communication use the same edition. In the American Revolution, Benedict Arnold used such a book cipher, known as the Arnold Cipher, with Sir William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England acting as the key. Had the Rubaiyat been used as the key in some spy ring operation in Australia? The book crops up no less than three times in the mystery. The copy linked to the dead man by the scrap of paper bearing the phrase to Maud Shud, the copy Jessica Thompson says she gave to Alf Boxel, and the copy found clutched to the dead body of George Marshall in Sydney in 1945. Whilst this collection of the 11th century Persian poetry is a common one, the editions in this case were far from ordinary. The Somerton Man edition was an extremely rare 1859 translation by Edward Fitzgerald. So rare, in fact, that when author and former policeman Gary Feltus led an exhaustive global search for other copies, the closest he was able to get was a similar Whitcomb and Tomes version that was published in a squarer format. The George Marshall version was even stranger, not so much rare as apparently non-existent. His copy claimed to be a seventh edition published in London by Methuen, but records reveal no such edition was ever produced, the Methuen run ending at the fifth. George Marshall's curious death also provides a link to the third copy of the book. Marshall died of an apparent suicide by poisoning in Sydney in 1945, close to where Jessica Thompson and Alfred Boxall were working at the time and the same year Thompson gave her copy of the Rubaiyat to Boxall. It looks far more than coincidence that the book crops up so often and that the additions involved are so peculiar and suspicious. Could it be they were actually not genuine copies of the book at all, but espionage paraphernalia designed to be used as book ciphers or one-time pads? A one-time pad is an additional entirely random, one-off key that makes a cipher essentially untrackable. They were often employed in the Cold War by Soviet spies operating in America to secretly communicate with their Russian embassies and consulates. There is not a single instance of any of the American intelligence agencies managing to crack such a code. Jessica Thompson and Alf Boxall's role in the story of Somerton Man have also caused many to suspect their involvement in espionage. Boxall admitted in the 1970s he was involved in intelligence during the war and, in recent years, Thompson's daughter Kate has stated she now believes her mother was a Russian spy. She had a dark side, a very strong dark side, Kate told Australian Current Affairs show 60 Minutes. She said to me she, she knew who he was 
but she wasn't going to let that out of the bag, so to speak. There's always that fear that I thought that, that maybe she was responsible for his death. Kate Thompson also revealed how her mother spoke Russian and would hint that the Somerton Man mystery was, quote, above state police level, unquote. If Kate Thompson's suspicions about her mother are correct, they have particularly dark implications, considering both Somerton Man and George Marshall died in strange circumstances within a mile of where Jessica Thompson was living at the time. There are many examples of Russian sleeper agents living normal lives in the West for years and decades, entirely unsuspected by those around them. The Portland spy ring in the UK in the 1950s involved several Soviet agents conducting normal lives as British citizens, and American couple Richard and Cynthia Murphy lived in suburban New Jersey for 15 years before being exposed as Russian spies Lydia and Vladimir Guryev in 2010. Was Jessica Thompson such a sleeper agent, operating silently in Australia for decades? Although far from the Western theater of the Cold War, Australia was a hotbed of espionage activity in the post-war period, with it playing a key strategic role for both the U.S. and the U.K. in the period following World War II. Both countries were concerned about the security of intelligence in the country. Shortly after the war, the joint U.S.-U.K. counterintelligence program Venona discovered a leak operating out of Canberra which was passing sensitive government secrets back to the Soviets. Because of this and other incidents, a dedicated Australian intelligence organization was formed, the ASIO, closely modeled on the FBI and Britain's MI5. The latter agency was especially influential, providing much of the initial personnel and expertise on ASIO's formation. It was around the time of Somerton Man's death that the MI5 team was in Australia to consult over the creation of the ASIO, and the new agency operated an office out of Adelaide close to where the body was found. Was there a connection? Some of the MI5 delegation, such as Roger Hollis and Robert Hembliss Scales, were suspected of being Soviet agents themselves, and the ASIO would later have its own problems with Soviet moles. The ACP, Australian Communist Party, was also viewed with suspicion by the Americans due to its susceptibility to Russian infiltration. The ASIO orchestrated defection of Soviet diplomat Vladimir Petrov in 1954 and also provided a great deal of new intelligence about Russian spying in both the United States and Australia, including the long-suspected spy ring operating from the ACP. With the country playing such an important strategic role for the Western powers, initially as the home of the UK's top-secret nuclear and rocket-testing base at Woomera, then as a key part of the Cold War Five Eyes surveillance program, it's inevitable there were active intelligence networks being run by both sides of the country. Whether Somerton Man, Jessica Thompson, and Alf Boxall were some small cog in those operations, we may never know. Whilst much of the evidence is circumstantial and suggestive, there are enough fingerprints of espionage in the story to suspect they were. An alternative way to look at the strange case of Somerton Man is not as a story from the pages of spy fiction, but one from the pages of romance. At least some of the evidence can be fit into a scenario 
of unrequited love, a World War II dalliance that ended in tragedy on Somerton Beach three years later. There is some reason to believe somebody was looking for Jessica Thompson the day before Somerton Man died. A witness who came forward several years later recalled a man knocking on her door the day before Somerton Man was found. Since we know Jessica Thompson was in the habit of giving copies of the Rubiot to men she knew, and Somerton Man's copy contained her unlisted telephone number, it's safe to assume the two were acquainted. It's possible the man was a foreign sailor, judging by the stenciling brush found in his suitcase, an item used to stencil cargo on merchant ships. At some point in the previous few years, the pair may have had a romantic liaison. For some reason, they were parted, and Thompson gave Somerton Man a copy of the Rubiot as a keepsake of their time together. An intriguing additional possibility is that Somerton Man fathered Thompson's young son, Robin, who was 18 months old in 1948. Several investigators have pointed to a couple of unusual features of the man's ears an enlarged upper simba and a diagonal ear crease clearly present in the morgue photos and drawings of his corpse. These features are present in only around 1% of the population and are also evident in Robin. Was Somerton Man his father? The main issue with this scenario is how and why Somerton Man ended up dead. Although the pasty substance found in his stomach was dismissed at the time as the cause of the man's death, Nick Pelling on his blog CypherMysteries.com suggests the excessive sulfites used as preservatives in baked goods in 1948 may have caused an extreme allergic reaction. This might initially seem far-fetched, but it was clear from the autopsy that Somerton Man was probably recovering from a serious illness when he died. His enlarged spleen is unlikely to have suddenly occurred on the day and is more suggestive of him having recently suffered from something like mononucleosis or malaria. Pelling theorizes that, in his already frail state, our man became ill after consuming the pastry at Jessica Thompson's house, laid down to try and sleep it off, and died. This scenario fits the autopsy evidence which noted the lividity at the back of the man's neck, something unlikely to have occurred if he died whilst sat propped against the seawall where he was found. It's possible Thompson then persuaded a male friend to move the body onto the beach to make it look like he died there, presumably to save the embarrassment and difficulty of having to explain how a strange man was found dead in her house. A witness who came forward much later in the 1950s did indeed claim to see a man on the beach carrying another man over his shoulder at some point on the evening before Somerton Man was found dead so there is some corroborating evidence for the idea. Whilst clearly speculation, the general scenario has some merit and cannot be discounted. The main objections are the lack of credible explanations for the book and code, and the inability to ever identify the dead man. If this was simply an innocuous domestic incident, then why has Somerton Man resisted identification for nearly 70 years? In recent years, a new theory has emerged as to the identity of Somerton Man. In 2011, a woman approached Adelaide-based biological anthropologist Professor Macy's Henneberg with an old military service card that had belonged to her father. 
The U.S. Siemens ID card featured the picture of an 18-year-old British man named H.C. Reynolds. According to Henneberg, the man pictured on the card is probably the same man found on the beach at Somerton. Quote, it's not just about an exact image. There is a close similarity of the ear, and ears don't change. Unquote. Henneberg noted several other similarities in the nose and lips, but was particularly convinced by a mole on the man's cheek. Such moles change little with age, he said, though size may slightly differ. Together with the similarity of ear characteristics, this mole in a forensic case would allow me to make a rare statement positively identifying Somerton Man as H.C. Reynolds. Whilst this may look convincing on the surface, there are problems. As with several other witnesses in the case, H.C. Reynolds' daughter has requested to remain anonymous, and her claims have proven difficult to verify. Searches conducted by the U.S. National Archives, the U.K. National Archives, and the Australian War Memorial Research Center have failed to find any records relating to an H.C. Reynolds. Other researchers have found possible civilian candidates named H.C. Reynolds, but the closest match died in 1953 not 1948. Like so many leads in this case, this could prove to be yet another dead end, leaving us no closer to the solution to the mystery. All we really know is a man died, alone on a beach, unknown, unclaimed, perhaps unloved. Maybe the most fitting epitaph to this story comes from the book At the Center of the Mystery the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, which states, Realize this. One day your soul will depart from your body, and you will be drawn behind the curtain that floats between us and the unknown. While you wait for that moment, be happy, because you don't know where you came from and you don't know where you will be going. Keep listening there's more weird darkness to come. So I've been sleeping on a MyPillow for a few weeks now, and I've been telling you that my sleep has improved drastically, so what are you waiting for? When are you going to jump on board and start experiencing the kind of restorative sleep you need in your life? Are you waiting for a better offer? Well, your wait's over, because if you go to MyPillow.com right now, you can take advantage of the MyPillow 4-pack offer. It's two premium MyPillows and two go-anywhere pillows and half off. Just go to MyPillow.com, click the four-pack special, and then use my promo code WEIRD. Two boys looking for chestnuts in Waldron Woods near Astoria, Long Island, found the body of a man lying dead with a wound on the right side of his head on October 10, 1866. Three men hunting in the woods also went to look at the body. No one recognized the dead man. The man was about 5 feet 7 inches tall, about 35 or 40 years old, with black hair, a smooth face, and a slender build. The little finger of his right hand was missing to the second joint. He was well-dressed, wearing a ribbed cashmere coat and vest and a black silk neck handkerchief. In his pocket were a box of percussion caps, a comb, a knife, a dozen buckshot, a brass key, a rosewood pipe, a small oil stone, and a steel tobacco box labeled 
James Mayer. He also was holding a pistol. Another man, who no one recognized, joined the party viewing the body and picked up the pistol. The unknown man went into Astoria and, while drinking at Cook's Sunnyside Hotel, showed the pistol and said that the man in Waldron Woods had shot himself. But the dead man had not shot himself. The wounds to the side of his face had been made by a hatchet. The man had been murdered. Detectives went to work trying to identify the body, learn the identity of James Mayer, and find the mysterious man who took the pistol. He had become the chief suspect, but he could not be found after leaving Cook's. An inquest was held, but still there was little evidence. The coroner's jury quickly returned a verdict that the deceased had been murdered by some person or persons unknown. While the inquest was in session, the body of another unidentified man was found in Waldron Woods. This time, the dead man had shot himself in the head. There was nothing to indicate that the two deaths were related. It does not appear that the two dead men or the man who took the pistol were ever identified. Contrary to what some have said, the U.S. Freedom of Information Act has led to the release of genuinely intriguing UFO reports. It's certainly not the case that all the good reports remain hidden behind closed doors. Yes, many probably do remain classified, but that does not take away the fact that there are some fascinating once-classified files on UFOs in the public domain. However, let's focus on some of the files that the British government declassified back in the 1980s. They too demonstrate to an amazing degree that at times government agencies are prepared to reveal to us accounts of a very extraordinary type. In September 1952, a notable UFO encounter occurred at Royal Air Force Topcliffe, a military base in Yorkshire, England. One of the witnesses, Flight Lieutenant John Kilburn, said of the incident, Sir, I have the honor to report the following incident which I witnessed on Friday, 19th September 1952. I was standing with four other aircrew personnel of No. 269 Squadron watching a meteor fighter gradually descending. The meteor was at approximately 5,000 feet and approaching from the east. Flight Officer RN Paris suddenly noticed a white object in the sky at a height between 10 and 20,000 feet some five miles astern of the meteor. The object was silver in color and circular in shape. It appeared to be traveling at a much slower speed than the meteor, but was on a similar course. It maintained the slow forward speed for a few seconds before commencing to descend, swinging in a pendular motion during descent similar to a falling sycamore leaf. After a few seconds, the object stopped its pendulous motion and its descent and began to rotate about its own axis. Suddenly, it accelerated at an incredible speed towards the west, turning onto a southeasterly heading before disappearing. All this occurred in a matter of 15 to 20 seconds. The movements of the object were not identifiable with anything I've seen in the air, and the rate of acceleration was unbelievable. Five years later, specifically on March 26, 1957, there was yet another amazing encounter, and again, the UK government handed over the files to ufologists, and with not a hassle in sight. 
The document states, in part, a report was received from Royal Air Force Church Lawford on 26 March 1957 of a sighting of an unusual nature. The object moved at a speed timed at exceeding 1,400 miles per hour. This in itself was unusual as the object had accelerated to this speed from a stationary position. No explanation has yet been found for this sighting, but a supplementary report, including a copy of the radar plot, was requested and has been received from Church Lawford this afternoon. A little more than a week later, there was yet another incredible encounter. April 4, 1957 was the date on which an extraordinary wave of UFO activity occurred in Scotland, much of it involving the staff of a military facility, Royal Air Force West Fro. Nothing less than a squadron of huge, unknown aircraft were recorded flying in the UK airspace. The Air Ministry ruled out a conventional explanation. Instead, as the now-classified files show, the Air Ministry was of the opinion that, quote, it is deduced that these reports that altogether five objects were detected by the three radars. Nothing could be said of physical construction except that they must have been either of considerable size or else constructed to be especially good reflectors. There were not known to be any aircraft in the vicinity, nor were there any meteorological balloons. Even if balloons had been in the area, these would not account for the sudden change of direction and the movement at high speed against the prevailing wind. The incident was due to the presence of five reflecting objects of unknown type and origin. It is considered unlikely that they were conventional aircraft, meteorological balloons, or charged clouds. Of course, this is an extraordinary revelation, and when the files were declassified back in the late 1980s, more than a few UK ufologists were surprised by the government's decision to release them, particularly given the fact that their content practically screamed out that UFOs were real. If anyone ever tells you that governments always hold back all the good stuff, now you can tell them they're wrong. It was in the early 1990s. My friend and I sat at a round table in a state university cafeteria to have lunch. My friend sat almost exactly in front of me. Suddenly, I saw a student wearing a backpack, a dress, and light clothes colors. She stood next to our table, her eyes looked in the open space. Her face seemed quite sad. I could see her and her outfit vividly, but I could not see her legs from about the knees down. My instinct told me that she was not there physically. In just a blink, as I took my eyes off her to look at my friend, the student vanished. I asked my friend if she saw the student. The answer was no. As I described the student's clothing in details, a chill ran down my friend's spine with goosebumps all over her body. I tried to pacify her by saying that people of the other world are around us invisibly, and for some reason that student appeared in front of my eyes. I must have had some connection with that student to see her while nobody else did. At approximately 1.15 a.m., November 20, 2004, 
My wife and I retired to sleep on the second level of our Boca Raton, Florida home after watching TV in our first floor den. As I often do, I put on our TV in our room, which helps me to get to sleep. As I watched a National Geographic special, I became groggy, knowing that keeping the TV on all night bothers my wife. I grabbed the remote and switched off the TV and quickly fell into a deep sleep. In what seemed an instant after doing so, I was awakened by my wife who questioned me as to where I was. My immediate response was, in our bed. My wife then explained to me that she awoke because she sensed that I was not in bed with her. She then stated that she searched the whole house and even walked to the guardhouse in her pajamas of our community to see if anybody had been permitted to drive to our residence to pick me up. She was told nobody had come into the community. Upon her return, she burst into the room and found me in our bed. She stated that my car was in the driveway and that my wallet, cell phone, and money was just as I had left it in the kitchen when we went upstairs, which further upset at her. She knows me well enough to know that if, in fact, I left our home for some reason, I would have taken these items with me. We do not live near any stores or establishments that one could walk to. As I awoke, she further explained that the covers in our bed on my side looked exactly as if I had pushed them down and left the bed. Realizing she was not kidding, I informed her that I just turned off the TV and fell asleep. She then reconfirmed that she searched our entire residence and I was not physically present. I glanced at the clock. It was about 2.30 a.m. when she stormed into our bedroom and awoke me with this shocking news. I tried to comfort and console her at this point and confirmed that to my knowledge I had not left our bed, not even to use the bathroom. Not really sure what had happened, we went back to bed. When I awoke, I asked her to confirm what had happened and that either her nor I were dreaming, and she confirmed it. Somehow, I do not think either of us actually accepted this event as reality because we awoke and did not talk about it. As a believer, I felt that I needed to let somebody know and help me to understand what might have happened. So I searched the web and found this site to report incidents. I called and was instructed to file this report as I am. I consider myself of sane and sound mind, and I'm a local business owner. I was also instructed to have my wife file an incident report, which will be done first thing in the morning. I'm also willing to have this event scrutinized by any means required to validate it, including on-site investigation, cameras, lie detectors, anything. It almost seems like something out of the twilight zone and I feel more confused than anything. I'm not sure what really happened. The evidence has it that I was somehow physically missing from my home for 45 to 60 minutes without my knowledge. I was told to examine myself for any marks and didn't find any. However, from the base of my throat to the middle of my chest, it is mildly red, as if I'd been exposed to the sun. I can tell because when I press the area, a brief mark appears such as when one gets a sunburn and presses the affected area with a finger. The rest of my body is unaffected. Do you have a dark tale to tell? 
Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you like the show, please share a link to this episode on your social media, tell your friends about the show, and please leave a rating and review. I might read your review here in the podcast. Yana Brady from the U.S. said, I honestly love your podcast. I take it to the gym. I drive in the car and listen to it. I have even been listening to it while I'm getting my classroom ready for students. I'm like running out of stuff from you, though. It's getting to the point where I have to wait for you to release another one. Morgan3CP in Canada said, This was a great podcast with really good stories, but the religious quotes that have started at the end of the podcasts are just too preachy, too bad. And Jax7373 said, So very glad I found this show. The voice work and the narrative skills are excellent, and the stories, if really true, give my bald head goosebumps. I like that the host reads both good and bad reviews on the show. It's a level of frankness that I find refreshing. One final note, I just ordered my pillows for my wife and I so we can be in comfort as we relax and listen to stories so truly creepy. We have to snuggle for safety. Keep up the great work. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness and early access to the Weird But True video series. And right now, only patrons can watch the Weird But True video the BBC's fake paranormal newscast that terrified a nation. All of the rest of the Weird But True episodes can be seen by anybody. You can find them right now on the Weird But True page at WeirdDarkness.com. Patrons also get exclusive content, such as chapters of horror and paranormal books I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. The audiobook Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis is finally coming to its dramatic conclusion this weekend and then I will begin working on a brand new audiobook called The Chilling True Terror of the Black-Eyed Kids, a monster compilation by G. Michael Vasey. So if you want to listen to Into Darkness before it disappears from Patreon, which will happen once it hits store shelves, you might want to jump in right now. You can become a patron for as little as five bucks a month at WeirdDarkness.com. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Family social group, get stories that I didn't use in the podcast, and more. There's something new posted every day at WeirdDarkness.com. Speaking of the website, there is also something in the right-hand column that might interest you, especially if you are dealing with stress. If you ever worry that some situation, some problem might never get better, right now you can request a free download on how to deal with stress. It's an eight-part series, and it's absolutely free to download but it will only be available through the rest of this month, so please grab it if you're interested. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. I Went Missing From Our Bed was posted at phantomsandmonsters.com. The Tom and Shud case was posted at The Unredacted. The Waldron Woods Mystery was written by Robert Wilhelm. UFOs, When Governments Come Clean was written by Nick Redfern. The Student in the Cafeteria was written by CR and posted at MyHauntedLife2.com. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we are coming out of the dark, remember, 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Ha! Take that, Morgan 3CP in Canada! I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. 
Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness. <laughs>